This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. 20 years ago, I was visiting a professor in Melbourne, Australia, and I was, um, my host asked me to give a talk on this, um, what, it's, what it's like to be a parent and a professional taking care of children with cerebral palsy. And so there's, there's, we'll talk about uh, some of that today. Um, these are my disclosures. They're in the, they're in the handout as well. Um, and here's my big disclosure. I was hoping to follow the, next, the, the previous speaker because he ta- he's going to talk about philanthropy. I was, it took me 30 years, but I had a, a family last year or about 18 months ago, give me $12 million for my, my center. So I was going to you know, tell them that you can do that. <laughs> so it's totally changed my career. I was going to retire sometime soon, but maybe never. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about some things that are off-label. Um, botulinum toxin has been approved for some things. It's uh, mostly been approved for upper extremity. Botox recently, just last month, I didn't put it on my slide, was approved for lower extremity use. Um, but we'll talk about those things. Intrathecal baclofen is not approved for the use in dystonia. I'm going to tell you it's the best thing for dystonia. And, um, but 50% of the drugs that we use in children have not been approved for children. And so as a, do- as a professional, as a doctor, you're allowed to do whatever you want, which sounds also really stupid. Um, so what is cerebral palsy? When I was a resident, I was taught that it's brain damage due to obstetrical trauma. And if you look on the internet right now, you find some fantastic websites, but they're all run by lawyers, and they all say, sue your doctor. And, well, but they have good information on them. Um, was the baby too big or too small? Um, I, we were taught that. Um, and obviously, there's a, it's a lot more complex than that, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go forward. Um, one of the things in the definition is that it occurs before the age of three, and I guarantee you, we sit to get, a bunch of us sit together in a room and make up things, and um, we say this is consensus, so that's what it means. And that also is the definition that you see there. Uh, we all got together in a room and came up with this, this, uh, this definition. Um, it, they actually left off the musculoskeletal problems in the very first uh, presentation, and Dr. Uh, Kirk Graham got that added on. But you can see it involves every, everything that affects the brain, which is everything that we in our body, is affected in cerebral palsy. <clears throat> and so much so that there really isn't a thing called cerebral palsy. It's the cerebral palsies. And this has been, if this goes back into the 1800s when doctors were, were writing about this in the first place, they called them the cerebral palsies because they, didn't, they knew it wasn't a, a simple disease, um, disease state. There are some increased risks. So if you're born prematurely, um, you have a higher risk. Um, if you're very low birth weight, one in three children will have cerebral palsy. Um, however, most children who have cerebral palsy were not premature. There's more kids that are full term than there were premature. Um, if, you're, if you're under 28 weeks, 10% of those children will have cerebral palsy. Studied up by the CDC done in 2008, and it hasn't been um, done since then, um, shows the prevalence in the United States in at least three different states is uh, three, three to four patients per thousand. So that's one in 278 children at age eight in the United States have cerebral palsy. It's really, it's the most common motor disability in, in uh, children. Um, so about 10,000 new diagnoses each year. About a million people have cerebral palsy in the United States. 
However, the thing that's changed and that came up in the last talk on, on CCS is that 87% of these children now live past 30 years old. And um, of course, all of our services stop at age 18 or 21. And that's, that's obviously a, a huge problem. And I'll talk about that later. For some reason, it's higher in the black population in the United States, and we don't know why that is. Um, maybe socioeconomic as much as th there may be others, other factors. However, there are now more adults with cerebral palsy than there are children with cerebral palsy. And I know most of you take care of children, but you all are care about these children, and where, where do they go after this? Just statistics about disability. About 54 million people have disability. And I always say, in a big group, if you look around the room, everyone in this room at one time in your life will either be disabled or dead. Think about it. Think about it, you're gonna be on a walker, you're gonna be in a wheelchair, or you're gonna be dead. So disability affects everyone, not just those of us who have children with cerebral palsy. Um, if you look at the cost of taking care of a child from birth to, uh, you know, all, all across all different um, severities of cerebral palsy, it's about a million dollars per person. Um, so it, it's a very expensive to our, to our community. Well, this is a huge slide that I know you can't see in the back of the room because that's where I just was. Um, but the, these, are, these are just the different things that cause the, the cerebral palsies. Prematurity is one of them. Um, as we're learning more and more about genetics, um, we're learning the, the, the chromosomal ab abnormalities and genetic abnormalities are affecting cerebral palsy, are, are, the, are the causes of cerebral palsy. I, I'll bet in... 10 years, maybe 20 years for sure, 10 years, that all of our kids with GMFCS 4 and 5 will have some genetic uh, label to them, mainly because I see about three or four a day. Um, my hospital is um, named by, uh, was paid for by Mr. Rady, Ernest Rady, and he just gave us another 100, well, he gave us $120 million to start a genetics institute, and they just gave us another $200 million last week, so he's really, it's pretty incredible for our, our institution. But we have this giant genetic program, and so every day I get something that I've never heard of, and I can't look up, and it's like XP, 3P, mine, 1, they're just numbers and letters that we have no idea what they have, so I don't know how to treat these patients now. Um, so I'm glad I'm close to the end of my career. <clears throat> I think it's going to be really hard to figure these things out in the future. Um, but the genetic influences are not so much on the, of the child having a genetic problem. It's many times the mother. The genetic uh, problem is the thing that causes the premature labor, that causes placenta previa, that causes, causes um, these problems. This is the first time I'll introduce my wife's problem. My wife has, um, was totally healthy. Um, she uh, had a blood clot when she was in college, um, and then when we, we were supposed to have, we, we were, my wife was pregnant with twins, and our, one of our twins died in utero at about 28 weeks. My son was born, my wife had a, an abruption, abruption placenta, so she, obviously that's a clot that makes the placenta fall off, and then she was, uh, then my son was born prematurely, weighed about two pounds, nine ounces, and eventually developed uh, GMFCS4 cerebral palsy. Fast forward 20 years later, my wife had a blood clot coming back from, on a flight from France, um, and her mother happened to get a cavernous venous thrombosis at the same time, and my wife is heterozygous for factor V Leiden. And that's something you need to think about with your families when you see them um, in clinic. I've, I've picked up five cases of this now in my career, which is potentially life-saving to the mother, 
because the mother has this, this bleeding disorder. It's a thrombosis. Um, I mean, this is, this is really hitting home. About a, six weeks ago, my wife was in the hospital with six PEs. Um, and she's fine now, but she's now on those drugs that you see advertised on the news at, uh, <laughs> for the old people, for us, Eloquist Elo- or something like that. So, um, so you look through all this, this list, and these are, this is how this has, in fact, uh, affected my family. So this is some, we, we kind of know the etiology now. We didn't know before. Um, but remember, causation, correlation does not imply causation, and those are where the, where the when people hear these things and say, well, that's what causes CP. Well, it doesn't always work that way. Um, just wh- why do kids have um, cerebral palsy that goes in a, in a particular um, uh, distribution? And it, you have to remember this homunculus from when we, were, when we, we learned our anatomy in, in, in medical school or in graduate school. And this is the, remember the, the homunculus on the, on the surface of the brain? And you can see the upper extremity has a huge representation. So think of all things you can do with your upper extremity. And then you have the really stupid legs that are down here that only do a couple things unless you're a soccer player. But you know, we just walk and run, and that's about it. Um, but you can see the area around the ventricles is um, a, a watershed area. A couple things happen in this, in this area of the brain. And this is where the... Um, it doesn't get a good blood supply. It's an end, of end blood supply. So if you happen to have a, a stroke or something that affects this area, it can affect the areas around the basal ganglia. So if it happens near the ventricles, and you've all heard of periventricular leukomalacia, it affects the lower extremities more than the upper extremities. And it can, you know, this thing gets pretty, can be, depends on how big this area is. So if it comes way over here, it can affect the upper and lower extremities. And, if it, and it's usually a bilateral, and so that's why you have diplegia, which is lower extremities worse than upper extremities. And then you can have strokes as well. So kids that have strokes on one side will have uh, hemiplegia. Um, we'll talk about some of the, the classification systems. But I want you to look at this, this area down here, and this is really what's changed in my career as far as the understanding of cerebral palsy. The basal ganglia are right next to the ventricles as well. And the basal, ventri- the, the basal ganglia are really important in cerebral palsy, which is something that's you know, probably we've learned in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. So some of the things we've learned um, with fun- functional MRI is this thing called tractography. Um, you can see just from this, this is actually a really simple tractogram, um, where they, you can see all the connections in the different parts of the brain. And it, it turns out that almost every part of the brain has another a connection with it. Every signal that comes out of the brain has a connection from some other part of the brain. So every connection that comes down from the, the cortex gets an input from the cerebellum, gets an input from the basal ganglia. All these things happen as, as it comes down. So you can imagine if you injure one part of the brain and it can't connect like these tracks going around, then um, you'll have some sort of problem, you know, often a motor problem. But this also may, un, may be part of the reasons we have mental health issues in, adults, in, in children and adults with cerebral palsy. So how can, how can uh, ideally we'd like to treat this like polio. How, uh, our treatment of cerebral palsy is terrible, um, but what can we do to make it better? How can we uh, address this? And, and Prevention is probably the best thing. Um, what we don't know is how to do that. Um, there's a, there was a big study that was done um, about 20 years ago. There was actually three NIH studies to look at the effect of eclampsia on cerebral palsy. And there's a, a salt, simple salt, magnesium sulfate, cost 10 cents, 
um, where it gave that to the families, and they had to stop the studies because those kids stopped having cerebral palsy. I mean, it was a much lower instance of cerebral palsy in the group that was doing taking the magnesium sulfate. So in the high-risk mother, if you can identify a high-risk mother, giving them magnesium sulfate has really helped. Um, and you can just look at all these other things. I think one of our, th- this area right in here about the brain cooling and anti-inflammatories is I think where, we're, where what's, what's happening. And that's the fact that we have a lot of children who have inflammatory problems by being, being born premature, having some sort of low-grade infection, some inflammation. And, and I hope that someday we'll be able to come up with a targeted anti-inflammatory that will help that. Um, kids are born, a lot of kids are born with um, anemia, and that affects the blood flow to the brain as well. And so giving so- something to stimulate that. And there's even people that are giving transfusions um, for, for kids when they were born. It's a little bit dangerous, as you can imagine. Um, and the big thing is, is to figure out the, um, you know, the mothers that are taking um, to- toxic drugs, nicotine, alcohol. Um, and then remember, this goes up to the age of three, so preventing non-accidental trauma um, lead poisoning, those kind of things, near drowning. So once again, this is in, come a little bit personal. This is my career choice. This is my wife and my son. Um, you can see the equipment in the, op- in the NIC looks exactly the same. It's still got these little silver things. and <laughs> all looks the same. Um, the, so he was born in uh, 1982. I was doing a pediatric rotation. I was an intern. We'd lost our twin. It's quite a traumatic year. Um, but my wife took me, we, went, we happened while she was pregnant, we went by United Cerebral Palsy Telethon, and she asked me what cerebral palsy was. Being the intern that I was and so knowledgeable from that one-hour class where we learned about cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, myasthenia gravis, I go, I think it has something to do with the brain. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's what most of my colleagues still do. It has something to do with the brain. We don't know anything else. Unfortunately, we haven't gone much further than that. So when I was a resident, I learned how to take care of kids with cerebral palsy. That's a big part of orthopedic surgery. But all we did was lengthen, in, lengthen tendons, especially the heel cord, and we put kids in casts for a long time. It was terrible. Um, and it's, the thing that, that bothers me is when I travel around the United States and around the world, this is still happening many, many, many places. This is all the kids get is a heel cord lengthening. And now there's this movement to do percutaneous heel cord lengthenings, which is, um, I'm going to probably spend the rest of my career talking about it, um, where the kids are just, they they cut the the heel cords and the kids can't walk anymore. And I have dozens of these children coming from around the world, from the United States, from very reputable centers. I'm going to, I'm the keynote speaker at the European Academy of Childhood Disabilities next month, and half of my talks apparently are to talk to people in Europe from doing this, because that's what I've got, that's my, I saw my schedule. Um, so my son had all these procedures, and they were terrible. So my son had a lot of bad surgery. Um, uh, I was very fortunate to do my fellowship in San Diego under Dr. David Sutherland, who is, uh, did most of his, his seminal work here in San Francisco at the Shrine. Um, and then he came down to San Diego, and he taught me, and I, um, it's just been a great part of my career to have worked with great people. Um, gait analysis, um, you... Uh, don't have much access to gait analysis here in San Francisco. There's one in there's a, a clinical lab in San, in uh, Stanford, but that's really about it, unless something's changed. They're a little bit expensive to run and takes a lot of understanding and, and teaching on how to do that. So it's a little bit controversial in our field, mainly because it costs so much, 
and um, it's it's really it, it, it's it's hard to uh, because gate is so complex to be able to break it down into individual components and then provide a prescription to a, a treating physician is what what the goal of this is. But many times we provide a prescription and the people don't know how to do the things that we've asked them to, to do. So it's really, you know, doing gate surgery is very complex and it's, it's a little bit controversial. So I'll talk about classification systems. So um, diplete, you know, the, you've all heard of diplegia, which is lower extremities worse than upper extremities. Hemiplegia, which is, or quadriplegia, which is the total body involvement and then hemiplegia, which is half the body. So this has very bad inter, intra and interrelated reliability. On my own charts, one day it'll say mild quadriplegia, and then the next one will say severe diplegia. And so it's, it's really, really terrible. Of course, Epic is really messed up because it doesn't have enough options to put what they really have. Um, so this isn't really good. Does anybody know what famous neurologists popularized this? This thing, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was a was a neurologist. He wasn't a psychiatrist. He started psychiatry, and he spent much of his career studying cerebral palsy. There's several treatises. I've read part of it. It's, it's hard to read. It's in German, but somebody it's translated, obviously. Um, and he and he really broke down cerebral palsy. He studied it, and at the end end of this, before he went into the field of psychiatry. He said, the biggest thing I, re I regret in my life is that I wasted all this time on childhood infantile spasticity. So he wasn't too, he wasn't too happy about it. Um, right now, there's a big move to, to use um, the, the European uh, thing, which is unilateral versus bilateral. I think this is totally useless to me um, because very, very rarely do you have just unilateral cerebral palsy. And those of you who treat know that that's true. There's always involvement of the other side. And um, there's a recent study that showed that, that, that this is wrong 21% of the time. And if that's true, then this is not a good uh, classification system. But it's really, because it's so simple, people are using it. Um, we use levels of ambulation, household, uh, can they walk in therapy? Can they go in the community? And those have limitations. And so we've, uh, this is the, what we use now, is the, the gross motor functional classification system. This came out of Canada. Um, and the, um, it comes off of this thing called the GMFM. So the GMFM is a series of tests that you give to children, kicking a ball, going upstairs. Can they, can they crawl? Can they, just gross motor tests. And you come up with a score. And then when they, when they put, when they, started to graph these out, they have thousands of children, they realized that they kind of broke into some order, some order um, where you have kids with higher function and then you have kids with lower function, just based on these scores. But you can see there's a pretty widespread between them, but we, then it was able to, we were able to break it down. And when they first published this, this study, it was published um, with words, and you can't use words for orthopedic surgeons, we need to have cartoons. And so my, um, my, my friend, Dr. Graham, got his artist to draw these cartoons so we can figure, we can figure out what that is. So GMFCS1 is a child that can walk fairly normally. They can go up and down stairs, but they have a little bit of problems on uneven ground. And um, sometimes those are, the, those are the kids that you don't even know if they have cerebral palsy. GMFCS2 is someone who has problems walking up and down stairs. And then in, the United St in, a, in a first world country, you can tell that the child, how the child is GMFCS2 if they're wearing an AFO. So if they have a brace, that's a GMFCS2. 
The GMFCS3 is someone who uses, uses a, a, a walking aid, so crutches, um, a walker, um, and, and for long distances uses a, a wheelchair. Uh, GMFCS4, so those are the, f the first three are ambulatory. GMFCS4s are non-ambulatory, but they can use an electric wheelchair, um, and they can do some standing and walking in therapy. And a GMFCS5 patient is someone who is totally involved and requires someone to be fed and all their care taken care of. So those the four and five are non-ambulatory children. Well, when we came up with this, this idea, we saw this, um, it's, it's almost a straight line, um, direct correlation between almost everything that happens in orthopedics. Um, and it, as it turns out, almost every, in almost in every other field as well. So if you, the kids who have GMFCS1 have less hip problems, they have less spine problems, and then GMFCS5s have more. It's, and it tur it, it's, it's one of the few things in medicine that it almost is a, a straight line. It's not anything else. But it's not an outcome measure. So you don't, take, you don't do surgery on somebody to make them uh, a GM, take, take a, someone who's a non-ambulator, a GMFCS4, and then make them a GMFCS3 or 2. It doesn't work that way. Our goal as surgeons is to keep them at the level that they were at at age 6. And that, it's hard to sell that to parents. It's hard to sell that to a lot, of, a lot of people. But that turns out that's just what the natural history is. And so if we see someone who, is a, who was a GMFCS3 and all of a sudden is using a wheelchair all the time, that's actually an indication for us to see if there's any surgery we can do to help or any other therapy we can do to help that person. This is an outcome measure. Uh, oh, the other thing on that GMFM, and I don't know if I can go back. The other thing that's very important on this is up to the age of six, six or seven in all of these, they continue to get better. So anything that you do, this is a natural history study. These aren't, in, there's no interventions in this. So whatever you do between zero and six or seven, whether it's early childhood intervention, whether it's botulinum toxin, whether it's whatever it is, those kids are going to get better. And we all take credit for it. I'd say about a, a half, not a half, maybe I'll be generous to myself, maybe a quarter of my CV is ridiculous studies done in kids this age, and they all got better, and I took credit for it. Well, they would have just, if I'd done nothing to them, they'd have got better. So it's, um, just, just remember that as you're looking, as you're looking at, uh, in, uh, at the literature about how things are going. This is, a, this is an outcome measure, and that's what happens at 550 and 500 meters. What you use, if you use a walker for 500 meters, but you can walk independently at five meters, it, it, we, and then we give these scores. So when someone tells me, they call me up from around somewhere and say, I have a patient who's a GMFCS3, and then they tell me what they do at 550 and 500 meters, I have a picture in my head of this patient. I, I, I've seen this patient before, and I can give a better recommendation than if someone says this is a bilateral CP patient. I don't know what that means. Is that a, someone who's walking? Is that someone who is in a wheelchair with bilateral CP? There are, a lot, there are other classifications, and if you want to get even further down, there's a one on the upper extremity called the, the MAC. Um, it was very similar things as the GMFCS. Um, there's a communication and functional, uh, there's a communication functional classification system, same thing. So once again, if you tell me that, and then tell me what their MAC score is, and then tell me what their, uh, their communi communication score is, I really know what this patient is like. And so that's the whole point of a classification system. So we look at dimensions of a disability. We, um, 
and this is, comes up from the World Health Organization, which is apparently our only uh, information on the uh, coronavirus these days, but the political statement. Um, but it's coming up from the World Health Organization, and it breaks, down, it breaks it down into body function and body structures, activity and participation, and environmental factors. And our goal, our goal is to do activities and participation. None of this, all the, you know, so what, I can make their bones straight, I can lengthen their tendons. If they don't improve in something that they want to do, what was the point? And that's what the, GM, that's what the uh, um, ICF is about. And so this is my son and my other younger son, actually. And we started a baseball league. It's called the Challenger League. They're all over the country now. Had the, we had the first one in San Diego and the second one in San Antonio, where I was stationed in the Army. And now it's taken off everywhere. I, I, don't, I don't take any credit for it. I was just one of the coaches. Um, but it's, it, it really is a, you know, participation is what's important. And here's my son now in, in a drum circle. And he goes every Thursday, and they do drum circles. And he's very active. He does much more in the community than I do. I just stay home and watch TV. Um, but you're all in this room, and it's just realized what a multifactorial problem this is. Um, and so every, just think, look at all the specialists in this room. It's just very impressive. And what you all do, and I'm sure that I could add 20 more things um, to this list. Um, so we look at the different therapies. Um, how many occupational therapists are here? I just want to make sure I don't say anything bad. Um, speech and language therapists? So I can, I can talk trash. Um, anybody specialist in visual impairment? Well, good. Well, these are, these are kind of important things. So occupational therapy um, in, in the field of orthopedics is a, are the people who take care of upper extremity injuries. In the field of cerebral palsy, it's a much more complex thing. It's not just that. It's feeding and oral motor uh, function. Um, speech and language is very important, and we talked, I've heard a little bit about that here. Um, management of drooling. As kids get older, especially GMSCS 3s, not, not older, but GMSCS 3s and, and above have a problem with drooling. Does anybody know what United States government agency funds the most drooling research? It's FAST program. Some of you have heard my talk before. <laughs> um, it is NASA. Um, when you go up into space, um, you drool. And they didn't find out about that until the, the Gemini program. Remember the Gemini was two people going around the, the Earth for a long period of time. And so they took their helmets off and the drool would go all over. They didn't see it until they put their helmets on as they came back into re-entry and then the drool would come down on top of their masks. And, and can you imagine two weeks of drool coming around there? So the people in the space station, the first thing they do is they get up and they they have a vacuum cleaner and find the drool because they can get into this into their equipment and they get the drool out. So there's a lot of research. So I've actually been to two drooling conferences and it's very interesting. Um, and then visual impairment. We don't think about visual impairment very much, but remember, it's a brain. It comes is a, there's a it damage to the brain. And so a kid, uh, especially if you know those of you who take care of adults with strokes, and and we I do that as well. But they if you think about the hemianopsias. So think if you just close your close your left your left eye, and then see when your hand comes in so you can see it. Pretty far in, right? So if you have a hand that even works, and you can't see it, you're not going to use that hand. You're going to ignore the hand. Other kids have hemianopsias where they they have in, it, it's an inferior hemianopsia because of where the brain injury is. So you can't see the floor. Can you imagine walking seeing the floor? 
And some, one, some of the studies that we've done in our gate lab is we, <laughs> it's always good to give talks in, in uh, hotels because they have the most hideous carpets. So if you, look at, if you look at these hideous carpets and realize if you were walking, could you look through this and go, oh my gosh, where am I going to fall through a hole or what, what's, what is this carpet or the ones that have really wild patterns. And we did, we did that. We put a blank thing down and then we put some of these ugly carpets down and kids walk differently based on what they're doing because they think they're going to fall. Um, neurodevelopmental, th there's a lot of different therapies and I can talk, I don't want to, but we can talk about all the different therapies. One of the early ones is neurodevelopmental therapy, which is what my son had. Um, hippotherapy, everybody knows what that is? Riding hippos? Um, you know, hippo is the work. It's funny, I, I asked the people who started this thing, so it, it, equine therapy was actually used, so they couldn't use it. And hippo is the Greek word for horse. So hippopotamus is a water horse. That's what the, how that comes from. And then, um, and then the big thing, well, physical therapists do so much, but also is one of the things that they're experts at is the equipment, getting you the right equipment for, for our patients. And those glasses are now back but they're usually worn by college uh, girls. Um, we, have, we, we have gate trainers, and the gate, gate trainer, you know, we, we're not quite sure how these work, but they, they really help the GMFCS3 patients. Um, the problem is, is when they become GMFCS4 and 5, and they're kind of hanging on a seat, is that really helping the child? I, my point at, at this thing is whatever the kid likes to do. If they like to do this, then that's great. But it probably isn't going to help them walk. If you're a GMFCS4 at age six, you're probably going to be GMFCS4 the rest of your life. There's the controversial areas. What's the role of standing? And we have um, there's several papers pro and con this. Um, if my one of the pros is that it increases the uh, the bone density in the lower extremities. Study out of Boston Children showed that in order for that to happen, you have to stand for an hour and a half a day which is really hard. And if you look at most of the standards for the kids who have osteopenia, um, they're hanging by their groin, right? So they don't really, aren't putting much weight down on their legs. All their weight is right there. So their pelvis probably has really good bone density. But we don't know what's going on in the lower extremities. And, and with DEXA scans aren't so good in kids. It's a lot of radiation. And so we don't, we don't really know the answer. This is also one of the things I say, if the kids like it, then do it. Um, I work, I ha I'll show you later that I have an adult clinic, and a lot of people in these uh, struggle to get the adults to stand. They don't want to do it. They're, they have contractures. People are, all the caregivers are hurting their backs, and you just realize, I, just, I can tell them if the, ki if the adult likes it and cooperates, then do it, but if not, it's probably not worth it. I've actually had dozens of fractures in my career of people trying to get people up in a standing, standing program. So there's different standards and different wheelchairs. And, and this is where uh, CCS insurance starts coming in is the expense of, expense of these things. So one of the things we don't like are the sling wheelchairs. Those are terrible. Everybody knows that, um, especially this group. So you have to get a special seating system. And then you have to get, this is similar to what my son's wheelchair is, electric wheelchair with all the, all the gizmos on it. It reclines in space because he has swallowing problems. Um, how, how much, I know you guys are in the field, how much do you think one of these things costs? 40, 40 thousands, about right. That's exactly right. So these are really expensive things, more, more, more expensive than my Subaru. So they're, they're kind of expensive. Um, lifts, 
you know, everybody wants to have a lift, especially as the kids get heavy, as the adults get heavier. Um, and these are the pictures that they have of these Hoyer lifts. They're always in a big white room where there's no, no, no carpet, there's no furniture, there's no doors. And uh, we bought one for, I think they cost about $8,000, and it's, it hung in our garage. It was really good to put towels on and stuff, but we never, we never got to use it in the house. Um, we, do, we have bought these in our home, but these cost about $10,000 each. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I can afford that. But we have them in his home and in our home, um, and they're, they're very helpful. Um, but this, you know, really hard to get into different places with these different lifts. So um, uh, just remember that not only are we caring for the, ch the child or the adult, we're also caring for the family and the caregivers. Um, Transportation is really hard. I, California has terrible... Um, transportation to different di different outings and San Diego is really one of the worst um, and then you get this you know so, some people have special um, uh, vans for for um, for transportation and, and we do too but they're hard to get you have to call in every day to get approval and then we have a van like this and we've on, we're on like on our fifth van for my son and these cost about forty thousand or fifty thousand dollars each as well and those are just and they break down all the time because you add all this extra weight, um, new tires and new brakes and everything. So it's really expensive. The medical management of, of cerebral palsy, and, and I just put all these down. Uh, hopefully you can, they're on, in my handout, but you can also see. I, I just put these down because my son has had all of these. This, these, uh, these are just a list of some of the things that has, he's had in his life. His seizure disorder didn't start until um, he was 25. He had no seizures as a kid. So as we were talking about transition of care to an adult provider like an internist, they, the first time they see him, they go, oh, this kid has a seizure. He must have had it his whole life. And, and it, doesn't, it isn't true. We, I can watch these kids, develop, kids and adults develop things later in life. Um, he has reflux, and he didn't get a G-tube until he was 21. Kind of the same thing. You don't, you, you people, uh, adult providers would not know that that was something that they need because they haven't followed him their whole life. Um, the movement disorders, um, we'll talk about spasticity. Remember from, from, from your undergrad and, and graduate school, spasticity is the reaction of a muscle to a rapid stretch. Right? So the way if you rapidly stretch a muscle, it'll catch, and that's what a reflex is. So what's the best way to, what to give a rapid stretch to a muscle? Reflex hammer. So you take a reflex hammer and you rapidly stretch the muscle, and that's how you, the leg comes out really fast. So that's what, that's what spasticity is. Choreoathetosis is the, the kind of the dancing movement um, uh, problem. That comes from the deeper part of the brain. It comes from the basal ganglia. Ataxia comes from the cerebellum. Ataxia is one of the ways to diagnose that is every step is different than the step before. So I know it doesn't happen in this group of uh, great people, but if you've ever seen anybody drink alcohol, and afterwards, that's what they have as ataxia, because every step is different from the one before. And then dystonia, and this is really has changed our field. Dystonia is the posturing that, that kids do. And this comes from, and this is, you know, a kid who's sitting in their wheelchair. You put them up, put them into a, under the bed, and they're like this. Their legs are crossing, their head's turned, and they're sitting like this, and that's dystonia. And we, uh, for years, called that spasticity. And so you hear so many times the term spastic quadriplegia. Well, there probably is no such thing as, there's a little bit of spasticity in quadriplegia, but the, most of the kids who are GMFCS5 are dystonic. So it's dystonic, we call it mixed or spastic and dystonic cerebral palsy, or spastic quadriplegia. So it, the dystonia is a big part, a big part of that.
And so as you look at this little diagram, the brain, the, here's the reflex. So hammer goes there, goes back to the spinal cord, comes back out, knee kicks out. What comes out of your brain are, is a um, neurotransmitter called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, and it's, a, it's an inhibitor of this reflex. So it modulates the reflex. So if you, didn't have, if you cut your head off, had no access to your brain, and you started to walk, every time you're up on your toes, and every time you put your weight down, your gastroc fires. So it pops you back up on your toes. And that's why kids with CP have equinus. Because it's always that that's always firing it's all the time. So you can you can break that up, and there's different ways to break that up. You could obviously cut the nerves here, that would do it. You could put botulinum toxin in here, and that'll stop this reflex arc because it affects the muscle. You can give a GABA agonist, which is baclofen and Valium are GABA agonists, things that'll stop, that'll modulate this reflex arc. These are all simple things for orthopedic surgeons. Uh, can you push on this? I don't know, maybe it I didn't. There you go, thank you. So this is kind of ataxia. Every step is a little bit different for this kid. See, I was, see the width of his base? And so that's ataxia. And this is a girl with chorioathetosis. And here's a kid who has a combination of dystonia and chorioathetosis. The, he has posturing of his hands. See how his hands are postured? So when we, when we, it wasn't too long ago that we came up, we figured out that most of these children have dystonia. And that's really changed our understanding of these patients. Because one of the things with, that, that dystonia, hap, what happens with dystonia is if you do typical orthopedic surgery like lengthen a tendon, they don't get better. They actually can get worse. So you say you take someone that has a biceps uh, spasticity and they have dystonia and you lengthen their tendon, they'll go into full extension and then they can't ever use their hand again. And so we're much more cognizant of the fact that these people have, have dystonia. And this happens down in the deep part of the brain. Um, I usually ask the orthopedic surgeons if they can uh, tell me the anatomy of this, which is always a joke, because um, I don't know what it is either. Um, but this is the area that we do deep brain stimulation and where um, people are trying to, trying to affect dystonia. Um, dystonia can become so severe that you can get what's called a dystonic storm. And we've had a couple of kids almost die of this. Um, the, the basal ganglia just keeps, keeps firing, so much so that every muscle in your body fires and you get um, your muscles break down and you go into kidney failure. So we've, we put these kids into comas and just let it all calm down and then eventually get a, a baclofen pump in them. But there's other problems that kids with cerebral palsy have, and that's the loss of selective motor control. Um, remember, if they have a hemiplegia, they'll have sensory deficits, so they may not feel their hand as well or their leg as well. Um, weakness is a big problem that we don't think about. I was taught in residency that you, don't, you shouldn't do physical therapy for strengthening in kids with cerebral palsy because it'll make their spasticity worse, and we know that that's not true now. A lot of studies have been doing that. And then um, the, these kids have de de delayed growth and development. So what do we do for spasticity? I told you a little bit about using Valium and, um, and Baclofen. Um, the therapy works for a while. It's like when you get a, 
a massage, you feel really good for about an hour, and you go, why did I spend $100 for that? And um, you don't feel good afterwards. Um, it's the same thing with there. We use phenol and alcohol, where you put that on the, the, the nerve, um, it, and it dissolves the myelin, the myelin sheath, and it stops the reflex arc from going back and forth. And that, that, that lasts for about six months. And then we use botulinum toxin. The thing we've been using recently is the CBD oil, which we can use here in California now legally. Um, the problem is we have no idea who makes it, which dude is handing it to you. You don't know what it is. And so we need to study it, but the, we actually tried to study it at our hospital, and the Justice Department said if you do that, you'll lose all federal funding. So we, obviously you can't do that in a Medi-Cal hospital. Um, orthopedics, just by doing surgery, we can, we can, we can alter the... Um, the, that reflex arc, because there's receptors in the muscle, and we change that, but it only lasts for about three months. It doesn't work very well. For some reason, when you do a spinal fusion on kids with dystonia, their dystonia improves. I don't know why, um, but somehow that you know, posturing, when you get it, it gets a little bit better afterwards. Um, but this is the real treatment for dystonia, and this is the intrathecal baclofen pump. Um, we have about 200 pumps in in our hospital. If you've never seen this before, it looks like a small hockey puck. And then you put the, the tube and we go all the way up. My son, when he had his put in, had it the highest ever. It was up at C1 and C2. And he developed um, swallowing problems afterwards and had to have a G-tube then and a Nissen fund application. But it's completely got rid of his dystonia in his upper and lower extremities. So he can now use a computer. Um, um, his speech is a little bit better, but um, it was at the cost of having to have a G-tube. Um, you can do a selective dorsal rhizotomy, and that's you have people here in San Francisco that do this. So this is for kids that are, have pure spasticity, no dystonia, and so it's almost for the kids that don't really need it um, for, to get the best outcomes. So they have to have normal trunk um, stability, but, spastic, but pure spasticity. So they're for the GMFCS1s, maybe the GMFCS2s, and a few GMFCS3s. If you do them for any other kid, it's probably not, nece- not going to work because it doesn't affect dystonia. Dystonia is coming from the brain, not from the reflex arc. And here's my son um, before and after his rhizotomy, I mean, after his uh, baclofen pump. And he, at this age, he was about 12, and he asked me to take him to the operating room and kill him because his life was so bad. He couldn't drive his wheelchair, and he couldn't use a computer. He had nothing in his life. Um, deep brain stimulation, you have, a, you have a program here in San Francisco that's looking at deep brain stimulation. So far, it doesn't seem to be working for cerebral palsy. It does work for the genetic disorder, DYT1, and there's, as I found out last week, there's three other ones because they all came into my clinic, um, types of dystonia that are genetic dystonias. Um, we don't know if this is going to work for them, but they, um, it, this really is a fantastic thing for the inherited, or, I mean the genetic uh, dystonias. So orthopedic surgery, we'll go through really quick. Um, we do single-event, multi-level surgery. Delay the surgery as long as possible. Remember, at six years, that's when you kind of figure out what level they're at, so that kind of tells you what they have. The other thing I didn't tell you is dystonia gets, starts getting worse at around age six years. So you, don't, may, you may not know that a three-year-old has dystonia, but you will a six-year-old. And then use spasticity management as an adjunct. And so in, initially, we do um, um, botulinum toxin early, um, and, and use, and use uh, AFOs. If we do casting with botulinum toxin, the only time we do early surgery is if the hips are coming out. So if the hips are coming out in a three-year-old, we'll do a, a hip reconstruction. 
And then our goal is to do what's called single event, multi-level surgery at around age eight, nine, or 10. So we only do one operation. On that day, I'll do 16 operations on a child, and then they do all the rehab afterwards. And it's, it's the best way. To, it, we think it's the best way to do the, to do the surgery. Um, so GMFCS1s rarely require surgery. Um, this is from my friend, Dr. Graham. And then they, but there are some kids in the autistic spectrum disorder that have some spasticity and that overlaps in this lower end of cerebral palsy. Um, and they, once again, these kids may need botulinum toxin, but really not, no other significant problems. Um, the GMFCS2, they'll have more spasticity, they'll have more deformities, and this is when we start doing orthopedic surgery. We do selective dorsal rhizotomies in this, in this group. Um, and we're looking, the hips, we start worrying about the hips coming out of joint at this point. This is where we start using AFOs. Remember the GMFCS2s have AFOs. Um, the GMFCS3s, much more severe. Dystonia is starting to come into the picture. We um, have uh, hip displacement that's more common, and we have to do a lot of surgery in this group, and we correct their hip and their feet problems. And so here's some of the surgeries we do. We do femoral osteotomies. We do tibial osteotomies. We correct the flat foot deformity so they can wear braces. Um, GMFCS4, once again, much more dystonia in this, in this group. And then um, we uh, can screen the, um, for, the, for the hip and, knees, hip and spine surgery. And you can see, so if you have GMFCS4 or 5, your chance of having hip dysplasia is really high. And here's, what, here's the hips coming out. They usually come out, back, out the back of the hip. And here's, so here's the child with the dis, dislocated hips. And here's what they look like after we do the surgery, put the hips back in. Here's another kid. And there's a long-term follow-up. So now their hips are in, and then that's good. And the GMFCS5s, these, these people have more problems with dystonia. And then 90% will have hip disease and scoliosis. So our goal is to get these children, the, the walker, the non-ambulatory kids comfortable in their wheelchairs so they can ha- have an, an, uh, improve their life. And this is when we start thinking about child and caregiver quality of life. We do, these are some of the operations we do and the, the kids, and this is like the worst operation I do. So these, these are kids who have never been seen by an orthopedic surgeon. They come in and their hips are completely dislocated and all the cartilage is worn off. Now, in my community, we have controlled our population because we've been doing it for 30 years in the same place. Um, but I'm, I see all the immigrants that are coming in now. Uh, last, well, yesterday in my clinic, I had five Arab-speaking families who I had to do surgeries like this on because they're coming in from the Middle East. There's some other operations you can do to help the hip. Um, you can do total hip replacements, but a lot of complications. Um, I'll just skip through this. This is something that I've been doing. I think I'm running a little overdue. Am I okay? Yeah, I'm, okay, great. Um, the, for um, kids that have dislocated hips or have had surgery for dislocated hips, you can use botulinum toxin around the muscles around the hip. I've just sent this in for publication. I have a 10-year follow-up on, on these patients. And um, they just keep coming back. Every six months I do. I inject all the muscles around the hip. It costs... The, the bottles cost $500 each. I use three of them. What CCS, well, CCS and Medi-Cal pay me is about 20 bucks. So it's, pretty good. it's a pretty cheap thing compared to doing a, uh, a major surgery. Um, but it increases, uh, the, kids, the, the kids and adults have done really well with this. Um, this is my son's foot, who had a bunch of different operations by my partners, none of which worked. 
and so this is what we do now for um, we fuse his joint because he had an ulcer on the top of his foot and his foot looks really great now we fixed his um, this is my son's spine here's his baclofen pump here's the scoliosis and the nice uh, job my partners did and we're coming, I'm coming to the end, but we're talking about caregiver stress. Remember that GMF, it's not just the GMFCS4. It's every, child, every, every parent with a child with a disability, and you deal with them all the time. You might be a parent of a child with a disability, or you might have someone who has a disability. Just realize how, how much extra work this is for people. So a person, there's a study that was done that showed to take care of a child with GMFCS4 or 5 is for the mother, it's usually the mother, is eight hours a day. So think about that, you know, if you have a typically developing child, you know, you throw them a Pop-Tart in the morning and see them back when they get home from school. Uh, but kids with, parents with kids with cerebral palsy, uh, you know, feed, feeding takes an hour. Uh, it's, a big, it's a big thing. A lot of back pain um, in this group. Um, there's, an, there's, a, there's a thing that started, it's, it's, it's in the literature that 85% of people with, of parents, of children with disabilities get divorces. And I started thinking, looking through my, patients, and that wasn't true. And then I went back and found the original source, and this person just made this up. So there is no, it's not true. It's actually better than the national average, which is 50%. 50%, that's still pretty bad, but it's, it's better than that. And it's usually the mother that gives up their job or career. Obviously, that has social impacts. And then there's sleeping disorders. My wife has not slept for 37 years. She still wakes up all the time. It's really bad. And now we, t- we talked about transition issues, and I want to go through this. I started an adult clinic um, about 25 years ago. I've seen over 5,000 patients. Um, we have, now I have two physiatrists who work full-time taking care of adults with me. I'm getting ready to hire a primary care doctor to work in my clinic because I have $12 million. <laughs> Once again, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, it's amazing when you get $12 million. You don't even think about what that is. I've never had more than 100000 to do any program. And now I'm, someone said the gate lab costs $250,000. I go, well, let's just get two of them. I got, I got tons of money. Um, anyway, so most of the things I see are, are kids with increased pain, or adults with increased pain, and that's where they're coming in. But the thing that I've noticed, and I'm getting ready to publish it, and I haven't quite figured out how to publish it, is that 45% of my patients are in some sort of antidepressant, and about 25 to 30% have diagnosed bipolar disorder. I know we're going to have that uh, talk at the end of the day today. I'm really looking forward to that one because um, this is my son's problem right now. All this other stuff is nothing. Cerebral palsy is nothing, and he even says that all the time. I can do my CP. I can't do my mood swings, and it's really, uh, it really has changed people's lives. Um, when, it, when, as a parent, and um, and when you're dealing with your your clients or your patients, however whatever you want to call them, um, remember the the kid, the the patient, and the family are going through these stages of grief. You know, first this, this is Kubler Ross's things, and it's the same thing that happens in cerebral, in in a disability. So it's in it's in the handout. But remember, you you may have a family that's going. Why is this family not doing anything I want them to do? Well, they're still in this state of denial, and that might be when they're 13 years old. And then there's other people that move through this really quickly, and then that's the, um, the thing. So what have I learned in my 37 years that people are always looking for a cure for their child? The new one now is uh, stem cells. Everybody wants to get stem cells, and so far that study from Duke has not shown uh, much improvement. Um, that dystonia and the understanding of GM, uh, GMFCS has changed how we take care of patients. 
Um, there's little money available for research in the field of cerebral palsy. Um, our Academy of Cerebral Palsy went to the, to the Congress a couple of years ago, got Senator Tom Harkin to sponsor a bill. bill. We got $65 million for CP research. It was, we were so excited. And remember when they had that, um, I just forgot the name of it, where they cut 10% across the federal government? What's that called? Whatever. Was, anyways, they, they, cut the, they cut all the spending 10%. That was our $65 million. That was in there. And then Senator Harkin retired. So we have to start all over. So re really important that we don't have much things. And then kind of the last one, but prevention is going to be the hope. And that, once again, there are people in this room and that you've spent two days to come here and, and learn about disabilities and, and share your experience who are really the true heroes that take care of all this. Um, these are the F words. That's it. It's in your handout. I stole this from uh, Peter uh, Rosenbaum. So the five F words. And just to finish, once again, as an orthopedic surgeon, some cartoons. Um, when when your first get, your child is born um, and they are in the first year, you're thinking of do they have a pink room or a red room or, or a or a blue room? And all of a sudden you're dealing with agencies. There's this thing called CCS, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> And all these different all these different agencies, um, you have all these medical things people are throwing around, um, necrotizing enterocolitis, all these patent ductus arteriosus, all these things that you don't know. Um, your family's in an upheaval, and then um, then you have costs that you didn't expect. Then as you get older, you have all these other issues of leisure and recreation. How do your how does your kid get to school? What's how much? Who's paying for the technology? The iPads. Um, who's paying for mobility, just the wheelchairs are really expensive, as we talked about. Education, every year until my son graduated from high school, I had to threaten to sue the school, every single year. And, and they loved him. They, they don't, I don't understand it. They always want to take away his aid. And then social relationships on how, you know, how do you have friends. My, I think for my son, the hardest thing was when he graduated from high school. He had tons of friends in high school, and now he has few friends because there's just, they're, they're, not, they're in different spots. Um, as you become an adult, you have to do self-care, self-advocacy, um, your job. Um, where are you going to live? Are you going to live by yourself? You're gonna, there's a lot of different housing options. And then conservatorship. And, and this is uh, one that a lot of our parents don't know about, um, is that once you turn 18, you can't, your, dad, your mom and dad can't sign for you anymore. You're an adult. And so you have to, uh, we had to take our son to court. I had to pay for my lawyer and for his lawyer. It's like $10,000. And we had to sue him to take away his right to where he's going to live, his medical care, money, if he could vote, and who he could marry, something like that. There's five things. And so we had to sue him and then he had, and then, because you're taking away civil rights. And so then the judge would ask him, and he just sat there. So it was not a big deal, but it was still um, something. And they come over every three years to check to make sure that things are, haven't changed. So it's a re really important thing. And now the medical care for adults is a big deal. Our parents are getting older. And, um, and then we have, I have people that are retired, and then they have even fewer friends at that stage. You know, you're 55 years old, you're retired. You don't even have your job people anymore. So our goal, everyone in this room, that's why you're here, is we're trying to help the people at all stages of life. And as you can see on this thing, and I think it's grown, drawn to scale, is medical is right there. This is the rest of the life that we have to deal with. And I think it's very important. So thank you again for inviting me. I already went over a bit. And I uh, hope to answer questions in the question section and uh, meet with you later today. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.